episode of the first series of Good Things Happen, City's Davida Heller and Harlan Singh told us how impact investing had grown from being a, a might do to a must do in their time with the bank. What began as a strategy to eliminate those companies that investors thought were bad for society, it's quickly established itself as the investment strategy preference for many, but there is still much to do. To help better understand the evolution and rapid growth in interest for impact investing, I'm delighted to be joined by Ava Yatsari, who is general partner of the women-led impact venture capital firm Beyond Capital Ventures. Ava is also the founder of The Conscious Investor and author of The Good Your Money Can Do, Becoming a Conscious Investor. Our second guest is Jorge Rubio Nava, City's global head of social finance, which has helped mobilize over $4 billion in commercial funding for small business entrepreneurs in over 40 countries, many of which had not previously had access to business capital. Welcome, Ava. You have great experience in the world of venture capital and asset management. Please share your story, which I've heard you describe as a mindset shift towards investing with awareness. Tell us that story in Zurich, I think it was. Yeah, thank you. Um, it's funny because how we how we tell our stories uh, also evolves over time. And um, while yes, I, I've lived in many places, including Zurich and Los Angeles, and I'm, I'm a native New Yorker, um, I actually think my story started out in New York, growing up in a place called Staten Island. Um, not many people, aside from me and Pete Davidson and Colin Jost actually have grown up there. I'm kidding, but um, you know, it's, it's definitely an interesting place and um, and very different. But also, frankly, just secluded from the city in which it it resides. It is, you know, as an island. And I think that what that taught me as an outsider um, is that not everybody has the keys to finance. Um, not everybody has the keys to Wall Street. And I was literally separated by a 30 minute ferry boat. So think about those, you know in places um, where maybe, you know, City is focused and, and Jorge is focused with his work. Um, I think that, you know, and, and certainly where we're focused in our venture fund in India and East Africa, there is a very large separation. And so when I was, you know, I say lucky enough, because I really did enjoy my Wall Street career, um, when I was lucky enough to kind of, you know, work my way um, through Wall Street, work in the hedge fund industry, invest in the top activist hedge funds. The, the, everybody wanted to have my job, you know, liaising with Bill Ackman and Carl Icahn. It was so much fun. I started to think a little bit differently, though, about the access of money and the tools of capitalism to those that were still outsiders, um, particularly because I came from that background. And so amid the big short trade, and I do write about this in my book, um, as well as, uh, you know, Bernie Madoff, you know, stealing millions, hundreds of millions and billions, and then Lehman's bankruptcy, I decided to leave Wall Street and pivot to becoming what we call an impact investor. I think now what that's really called is, you know, an, an investor um, and an investor who is thinking about all stakeholders. Um, but 13 years ago, that was not cool. And I would sit at dinner tables and be told, okay, you go talk about that. And we're going to talk about making money over here. Um, and, uh, and, and that's really my story. I mean, when you alluded to Switzerland, I think um, while I intellectually entered the impact investing world in 2009, 
I still had a very kind of Wall Street mindset. And um, what I mean by that, and I think there are some great things, you know, institutional rigor, um, knowing how to manage a portfolio, um, you know, of course, being focused on due diligence and, and quality of due diligence um, for me. But when I did live in Switzerland and I was told that I couldn't take Philip Morris out of my personal portfolio, that was the aha moment. And that was the mindset shift that really got me to think differently about how, you know, how there really aren't enough tools around impact. So happy to talk about that, but that's, that's who, who I am. And I I currently reside in Dallas between kind of LA, Dallas and London. Um, So I view myself as a global citizen. What a great intro. Uh, Jorge, follow that. Uh, Take us back to Mexico and your early academic career. Tell us a a bit about how you got into this world of impact investing and social finance. Yes, thank you. Thank you, Jory. And and good to talk to you, Eva. Uh, And thank you for the invitation. It's it's a pleasure. Well, yes, I got into banking over 25 years ago in Mexico City. That's, That's where I joined the bank. And as you probably know, Mexico is a country with some of the highest rates of financial exclusion in Latin America. At that time, I remember more than 70% of the adult population were on banks. And not surprisingly, the majority of them were women. So as a young analyst out of university, starting to explore the industry, I was, I was really intrigued by this massive gap in a middle-income country, the second largest economy in Latin America, in the top 20 globally. But with these huge inequalities and and this gap in access to financial services was hard to believe, to be honest. So so I started to get familiar with early microfinance models. I remember I had some friends at university that uh, after the massive earthquake in in 85 in Mexico City, uh, that was kind of a call to action for some of us. And, And they started to implement microfinance models in the south of the country. So I was really intrigued by that. And I started visiting the communities and talking to people, talking to microfinance borrowers, getting together to receive working capital loans and interacting even in languages other than Spanish, which was really interesting to me. I started then to uh, sort of better understand the financial lives of lower income segments in rural Mexico. That's when I saw for the first time things like group lending in deep rural areas serving mostly women which was very new to me or some innovative working capital loan products for small businesses that didn't have any access to formal finance or formal collateral i saw early forms of life insurance as well very simple quick to pay claims easy to understand with no small print or exclusion so So I started to think how in the bank we could partner with these institutions at the same time and help them access adequate funding in local currency to help them expand their portfolios and develop a more inclusive financial system at the same time. So we were able to partner with with a few of them. And I remember we started lending to, to a couple of microfinance institutions, the leading institutions in the country at that time. It was evident for us because they were expanding so rapidly that they needed to be connected to the capital markets if they really wanted to expand their outreach. So we had them issue their first bonds in the local market with the support of the World Bank, I remember. So without us knowing, it was the first time that a microfinance organization in the world was issuing an investment grade 
bond, meaning that institutional investors, insurance companies, for the first time, were supporting rural women in the country through the use of proceeds of this bond. That's when I realized that there was no way back for me. I've dedicated my life ever since to development finance, my, my career at City, and I'm privileged to work in an organization that is present in 96 countries around the world. So I've been able to replicate these ideas and solutions across the world. Impact investing, it seems to me, it means different things to different people. Uh, and it is also evolving in its understanding. And um, Eva, tell us, tell us, how do you define it? If, uh, if people are still asking you at conferences what impact investing is, how, how, do, you, how do you describe it? I don't love to use this classical definition of you know, impact investing is the intention to have social and or environmental return alongside financial return. I think everybody knows that. Where I think impact investing gets really interesting is around the mindset shift of this is not a zero sum game. Jorge could, you know, like, you know, he's a banker. He could easily kind of look at the world um, from only like, when I win, you know, you lose kind of paradigm. I think that's like, that's, and not just taking kind of the banker paradigm. And, you know, certainly that's what I learned on Wall Street. You know, I'm making money and I don't really know what's happening on the other side, or I actually do know. And I'm willing to ignore that. And so I think this mindset shift of impact investing and the definition that I like is that the pie is not finite. And that, you know, somebody in East Africa can have a access to the goods and services that they want and need, that they have a budget for, um, and a business can earn money and profits and even make millions um, or billions serving those customers. And investors can also win in that equation. And just like Jorge referred to the institutional investor, the power of that institutional investor having access to the female borrower in Mexico, who is underserved and undervalued. Um, I think that um, there are tremendous amount of opportunities like that, um, that fall into the impact investing category. So for me, that's really what, what it comes down to. I also, thank you for mentioning, I did write a book called The Good Your Money Can Do. And I do, I do use a paradigm of a conscious investor as well in that book, simply because conscious investors are thinking about not just their money or their investments, but they're thinking about all their resources as well in that, in that equation of, you know, this is not a zero sum game. And this is about growth, isn't it, Jorge? This isn't about charity. This isn't about, you know, doing, doing good to make us feel better. This is about building the global economy and, and helping communities build wealth. Oh, absolutely. And, and for us, it has really been a revolution. The work in microfinance and social finance in the early days, let's say in the 70s or in the 80s, was pioneered by foundations and philanthropic organizations, including, by the way, the City Foundation, that were supporting early versions of microfinance models around the world. What they really did was to demonstrate that these segments were bankable and that this could be done at scale. And the way to do it at scale was to make it sustainable and make it profitable. Why not? 
So the bank realized that we had to change our approach and treat these early microfinance institutions and inclusive companies as clients. So that's why we created this team, because you're very right, Jorian, the, the, the key word here is scale. And we realized that we could add value because we have a presence in all of these countries where these institutions were growing. And we have unique local capabilities, local products, access to local currencies, but also global investors. And this was what these clients really needed, access to adequate local solutions. What we had to demonstrate was that we could do this at scale and that we could replicate and we could bring institutional investors, as we've said previously. So that is how we define it at the moment. And that's how we've been able to expand our portfolio to more than 40 markets and to mobilize more than $7 billion in capital to clients, city clients, that expand access to basic services in the last mile in emerging markets. Eva, tell us about some of the changes that you've seen, because it, this is work in progress. This is evolving rapidly. You know, maybe give us some examples of the work that you do or the investments that you're making. I actually don't know if I agree that it's evolving rapidly. I am an optimist, but I think there are a lot more places that investors should take a take a look in the mirror and be authentic about supporting. And one of those is women and people of color. Um, when it comes to my my investments, um, I'm very lucky to have a, a fund. Um, I have incredible investors who have backed me, um, institutions and individuals, and um, we have supported companies across East Africa, where my family actually lived many decades ago, and in India, um, that are providing need-to-haves, so access to need-to-haves, and they are all led by conscious leaders, um, and we have a scoring system for leaders who are thinking about all stakeholders, but a couple of great examples are Africa's leading femtech company called Kasha. Um, and Kasha focuses on access to women's health in urban and rural settings. I mean, if I think about my life here in the US, I don't have a one-stop shop for women's health. So this is truly an innovation and it can scale across the continent. We're also invested in um, a medical supply business. Um, and this is kind of a category of business that I really love, which is an industry that has not yet been disrupted. That is what a VC, you know, wants to find. If they could rub the lamp and ask the genie for a wish, it would be, give me an industry that hasn't been disrupted. And so med supply in Africa is very much so that, that in that category, um, we're invested in the nice and on the board of a company called VBEG. Um, we invest at the pre-seed stage. We do a lot, we lead a lot of deals. So we're very active, we're very hands-on. We have a strong GP value add. Um, and then in, in India, um, we're invested in India's largest B2B artisan platform. And um, this is uh, one of our impact themes is livelihoods. It's, it's good jobs, not just, just employment. It's making employment better. Um, and so this company helps upskill artisans. And I'm not talking about like handicrafts that you buy on holiday. I'm talking about, you know, things like, like this vase. I'm not sure where it was made, but there are like a lot of kind of Crate and Barrel or John Lewis sell a lot of these products that we all have in our homes. You know, we all use for decoration or even functional um, in the kitchen. And a lot of these are made by artisans that for that for generations and their families have been making these products, but they don't have the connection to the buyer. And so Lal 10 is a tech platform. 
that provides access to that connection. And so these are three examples in, in the portfolio. These are all companies at early stages. And um, you know, in my personal investing, I try to integrate more public options because I think there are good and authentic ones out there. You just, you have to, um, you have to look for them. Okay, uh, Eva says that, you know, maybe I'm over-optimistic in saying it's rapidly evolving. What change needs to be done? Well, how do we get acceleration in this space? Yes, that's that's a good question. One of the partnerships that we have developed over the years, for example, has been with the DSC, the Development Finance Corporation of the U.S. government. This is, this is an institution that leads the uh, development work for the U.S. government. But we also partner with the Ford Foundation, and we created together a program to lend in local currency to some of these companies that are early stage, that it might be that they're still pre-profit. I mean, they, they are not really profitable yet, but they have very ambitious plans, and many of them even want to go international. They have regional aspirations uh, from uh, their own markets. So they are, they are a good fit for the city platform because we can travel with them. But because they lack a credit track record, they're very early stage. They do not enjoy access to commercial borrowing from local banks. So this program enables us to, in partnership with the DFC and, and Ford, provide them with local currency so that they can start scaling their business. We could provide them with access to local funding and help them grow and potentially help them access other forms of commercial borrowing. We can use programs like this to take them to the next level. We take them to the capital markets and, you know, who knows? But this early stage financing is one of the ideas that I think has worked very well for us. We have a couple of other examples of transactions that we've closed using this program in the healthcare space, in the financing of smallholder farmer space, in the education space, or even in inclusive financial technologies, the so-called fintechs. In Latin America, for example, we closed a transaction in Mexico for a fintech that finances small and medium enterprises that are underserved in the country. SMEs, as we know, constitute the backbone of the economy, but they have very limited access. So this company uses technology and different data sources in their credit underwriting process to provide them with working capital to grow the business. So we're funding this company so that they can expand their outreach. Is it just about accelerating awareness or is there a need for structural reform and innovation to accelerate change? Ava, you take that. I don't believe that we will achieve let's say the SDGs, if we're looking for that as a measurement. Um, I mean, I, I think we're not on track to achieve those goals by 2030, um, but I think we won't come close to them unless we truly structurally innovate. And um, one of the things that we're doing at Beyond Capital Ventures is we're giving a percentage of the profit share to every founder in the portfolio. This was a no-brainer to me, and it is my money that I'm giving away. So just to be really clear, we're not asking for our investors to do something concessionary. We don't believe in concessionary investing when it comes to impact. Um, at least we don't believe that it has to be that way. Of course, there are areas that need philanthropy and other blended capital sources. But for our investments, we really believe that they can be highly profitable, but also have a very, very strong impact. And so by making our founders owners, we're creating a community around our work 
We're also solving the problem of, you know, my US and European investors decide that they want emerging markets exposure. And we invest into Africa and India, and then we give them the returns back and they do who knows what with it. So I think that um, creating ownership, creating wealth um, amongst marginalized groups, um, and that is, of course, you know, women in Mexico that don't have access to finance, but it's also people like me um, and people like the founders in my portfolio. Arlen Hamilton, for example, um, who raised backstage capital, but there are many examples um, of fund managers. In fact, my call after this was, is with a fund that I'm invested in, personally run by two women, one who is Latina. And what I learned is that there are about 20 Latina VCs in the whole US, females. So I think these are things that are so important. And I, I don't know any other way to change them, but structural, because the biases run so deep. And I think it's, it is much harder for marginalized groups to raise money. And so I think, again, our solution was equitable venture. It was to truly just take a slice of our carry 10% and give it as a grant, you know, use it as a carrot. We also give founders two times more of that carry if they commit to specific gender positive policies and having women on the management team and changing, like de de decreasing the gender pay gap if they initially had one when we invested. Um, so I see this as all kind of all good things, you know, why not have extra incentive for your portfolio companies and then have a positive outcome at the end of the day? Is this a generational thing? I kind of get a sense from some of the people that I talk to that, you know, it's like the parents are being pushed to do more by their children and uh, the children are the real change makers. Or is that a cliche? Is that a stereotype? In my book, the dedication was to a few Gen Zers that I know and love, and I'm inspired by their commitment to change. I think my kids will also be committed. My son is, you know, he's like, why are we doing a takeaway dinner once a week? You know, because we're working parents and it's, it's, it's a lot. And he's like, it's, it just causes pollution. I don't want that sushi. Um, and so, so my kids are much more aware. But I think that by Stating over and over and over again that this is a generational thing, we are allowing for the older generation to just do what the status quo is, and we're not asking more from them. And I, this is like a common excuse. It's like, oh, the family office is not ready. The patriarch is not ready. Okay. Well, I don't see that as an excuse. You know, maybe you should focus on another client where the patriarch actually is ready in this system because it's not going to help us to just say either, you know, that the next generation isn't going to do anything or, you know, the other common thing is hiding behind the veil of being a fiduciary. I see that a lot, which is separate from what you brought up, but I think also another like interesting excuse that comes up a lot. It's, you know, well, I can't consider this because I'm a fiduciary. Well, actually you have more information when you have more impact data. So you actually are a better investor. So actually it helps you be a fiduciary. And I, I'm a fiduciary and I know where that line is. And that line has nothing to do with impact. That line has a lot to do with, you know, obviously executing on your investment strategy, et cetera. But there's, there's, there are many ways to weave impact into that. So sorry for my little tangent, but these are kind of like common excuses. And I think that we need to move beyond them. It's, it's kind of getting old, <laughs> these points for me. 
I don't think that's a tangent at all. I think a fiduciary's job is to lean into change and progress. And, uh, you know, we're seeing more and more figures that the companies that are run well attract the best talent. They perform better. It's, uh, it's a virtuous circle, isn't it, Jorge? Absolutely. And, you know, it's, it's interesting because we get a lot of interest from young analysts and we're constantly asked to talk to this new generation of bankers, in fact. The reality is that many of them are very curious to know more about how we do and how a bank, a global bank like City, can make a change. How you're using our footprint, how you're using our balance sheets to not only grow our philanthropy, but, but really use our balance sheet to initiate this change. I just think it's, it's very interesting and, and it's, it's a great trend that gives us hope. As you know, we had a change in leadership a couple of years ago. In fact, we have a new CEO that has been keen from day one that we become a bank with a soul. She, she likes to say that. So we, we made public commitments for us to mobilize $1 trillion by 2030. We also put a global commitment to reach 15 million households in emerging markets. These are low-income households, including 10 million women through our funding and our client partnerships. So we are being much more articulate in the way we do things as part of our sustainability strategy. And I think it, it's a good direction and it's, it's a sign of the times, which is welcome. Because for us that have been working on this space for over, let's say 15, 20 years, like Eva and myself, you know, it, it is a validation of the work that we've been doing that now has potential to grow more. Ava, I've been uh, watching some of your your YouTube videos uh, from The Conscious Investor. Tell our audience about that, the work that you're doing there. What, what, what's its purpose? Yeah, so um, I'll rewind just to say that I was kind of staring out my office window a couple of years ago, probably around 2018 and maybe 17, and I just thought, Gwyneth Paltrow. And that sounds really strange in the context of impact, but when you unpack it, what I realized was that Goop was telling everybody to detox their homes, to detox their bodies, to detox their minds, to detox their relationship, to detox their closets, but they weren't talking about money. And so I reached out to um, the creative director at Goop, and we've done a series of articles including um, the seven steps to becoming a conscious investor, which was the most recent one. It's like a nice little kind of quick guide to becoming a conscious investor. But I worked with an incredible journalist named Stacey Lindsay, whom I then launched a magazine with. And it's called The Conscious Investor, um, theconsciousinvestor.co. And what we intended to do, um, you know, throughout the, the period where we were, we were active um, was shed light on change makers, shed light on impact, but do it in a journalistic style. And while impact alpha is great, you get your quick fix, you know, you listen to the podcast, it's, it's perfect. You know, podcasts like this, I think go very deep. We really wanted to almost take the goop editorial approach to impact and package stories in a very different way. Um, and so we featured many incredible investors, incredible founders. We did a, a collaboration with a group called the Maverick Collective of women who've kind of like a, a mini version of the Giving Pledge who have um, committed to giving a large sum of capital to specific women's causes. Um, and we had those women write their own essays. And so we've also done guides, Beginner's Guide to Impact Investing, 
guide to racial equity, um, especially around the murder of George Floyd. And so uh, we've been committed over the years. Um, because I'm in the venture fund raise, I we decided to take a little pause, but we are coming back as, as is the podcast. But But this brings up a more important point, which is I don't believe that the PR of impact investing is where it should be. Partnerships are important, but the largest investor in my country, in the US, is retail investors. And they have no idea what their power is as a collective. And I think that that's why we need to go like Kardashian style and start making this really cool. And I'm you know, sitting here as an impact investor, watching all these brands, including Good American, started by Khloe Kardashian, which is like size inclusive, body inclusive, almost like allowing gender fluidity, but like allowing people to be who they want and diverse for sure in their marketing. And I think that impact investing needs a little bit of a rebrand. And that's that was my intention. I think that others should start to take cue. You know, let's let's hire the best PR firm and let's let's make impact really cool. Yeah, I guess the clue's in the question. It shouldn't be about making an impact on on status quo. The status quo needs to be about behaving in these ways. Jorge, uh, what, what more could banks be doing? Um, you speak very proudly of what Sid is doing, and there's clearly a lot of progress there, but uh, are, are global banks just scratching the surface? Well, yes. Well, well, obviously, there's there's the local banks, right, in all these markets where we operate. One thing that these emerging markets have in common is the high levels of financial exclusion. So I think for banks that have a consumer model in any of these countries, there is a big opportunity to be more inclusive. Now, because of improvements in technology or access to smartphones, access to the internet and more digital channels, there's now an opportunity to reach customers that were more difficult to reach in the past. But I think there is also an opportunity to build these more inclusive financial systems using digital channels. And I think for global banks, if we partner with the right clients, with, with some of these local financial institutions, with some of our corporate clients and digital disruptors, to help them access international investors, including impact investors or development finance institutions, you know, and the, the capital markets at some at some point, so they can ex- start you know, expanding these portfolios. And, and there is a huge area of opportunity for all of us. In general, I think global banks like ourselves, when we have dedicated portfolios and we have the markets like we did last year with our social finance bonds, where, where we are committing to use oh, the proceeds uh, of the bond to be allocated to these specific areas like healthcare, education, connectivity, affordable housing, or financial inclusion for low-income segments in emerging markets, that in its own right sort of creates or helps build this idea for investors that through their investments, they can reach countries in Sub-Saharan Africa or South Asia just by investing in bonds like this one and, and going really, really deep. Got you. So my last question for both of you is uh, what advice you would give to young listeners who are wishing to make an impact on the world who may not have previously thought about banking and finance as as the means to do it. I mean, let's be honest, banks 
you know, kind of have a reputation for being the bad guys. But the more and more I learn about the world that you you guys operate in, you, you, you're making tangible differences. So how can people get involved? What, what advice would you give to a, a young liberal arts undergraduate who might not be thinking about banking or investments as a, a career? Ava, you go first. I don't think making anybody the bad guy is a good thing. It's actually the opposite of the mindset that kind of goes along with this is not a zero sum game. Like we're not making enemies here. Like I want everybody to win. And when it comes to advice and and thinking about tools, I think capitalism is a fabulous tool. Like, of course, I agree the system doesn't work for everybody. Of course, I want that to change. I, you know, go as far to think that the language of finance is, is intentionally built to exclude people. You know, I'm lucky that I understand it. The advice I would give is no matter where you are to constantly question the system. You know, somebody gave me great advice. She's a very early impact investor, which is just, she just said, keep outing the system. Activism is not bad. In my book, I write about this. Why do we have to view gender equality or caring about the climate as activism? Like this should be real, right? So let's let's keep pushing this envelope further. And this is not woke capitalism. Like let's, you know, for the for the listeners who have a specific view, this is not woke capitalism. This is like, this is opening up new opportunities. And so um, my advice is really to just keep questioning and finding new opportunities. And, you know, I, I can't imagine any investment, like of any manager that you would work for that would say no to you finding new opportunities to invest in. So, um, I think that using capitalism as a tool and rejecting it is actually problematic. Okay. I think this is not only related to financial services or banking, by the way. I think whatever you are, whatever your career might take you, there is an opportunity to think outside the box, to be disruptive, as Eva says, to question the system. I think most of us that are working in development finance, at some point in our career, we're told, you know, that's not possible. Why are you doing this? It, it doesn't make sense. It's, it's not aligned with our profitability or our returns expectations, but you have to somehow overcome all of these. And that probably means that you're on the right track, to be honest, because you know, these things, you see the possibility. You, you, you have to push for that. I remember when we presented to a committee, a transaction in Sub-Saharan Africa to expand access to solar home systems, there were so many questions and people were saying, should we really be doing this? Is this the best use of our capital? Is this the best use of our time? How can that be scalable? And we are now doing these transactions more commonly. So this is really happening. So, so it is about, as Eva says, questioning and being resilient when you're said, you know, no, it, it cannot be done. Well, thank you so much. You're both doing such inspiring work. And uh, and thank you for your time. Thank you for sharing your thoughts and observations on this uh, critical area. Thank you. The views expressed herein are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views of Citigroup Global Markets, Inc. or its affiliates. All opinions are subject to change without notice. Neither the information provided nor any opinion expressed constitutes a solicitation for the purchase or sale of any security. The expressions of opinion are not intended to be a forecast of future events or a guarantee of future results. Citibank and Aim Beyond Capital Fund are not affiliated and are independent companies. The speakers' views are their own and may not necessarily reflect the views of Citi or any of its affiliates. Thank you.